All right, let's uh, get into God's word, 2 Thessalonians 1. We're going to be in five, uh, chapter, uh, verses 5 through 12. No one is worthless. I hope you understand that. No, no human being is worthless. Your worth and value as a human being comes from the fact that you are an image bearer of God. That is to say that, that you have been created, created in the image of God. Therefore, you have, by virtue of that, inherent value, inherent worth. You are not worthless, but you are all unworthy. We are all unworthy. And our unworthiness comes from being born in sin, thus separated from God and under the condemnation of judgment and death. That makes us unfit. That sinfulness, that separation makes us unfit for his kingdom. And this is, this is the tragedy, unable to do anything about it, incapable of making ourselves worthy of the kingdom of God. But knowing I have worth as an image bearer of God, how then is it possible for me to become worthy of his kingdom? That's the question that we're going to ask and answer from today's passage. Paul gets into the very issue of worthiness, our worthiness, when he tells his readers that it is God's divine grace. That's what we're talking about throughout this series. It's God's divine grace that allows his readers, this is in verse 5, to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That it isn't something they're going to do for themselves. It's something that Christ does for them to make them worthy. It is the result of God's undeserved and unearned favor and kindness on them. And all of that applies to us as much as it applied to the Thessalonians. So let's read these verses together. I'll pray and we're, we're going to go after this together. Second Thessalonians um, 1, 5 to 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we would want uh, the same thing that Paul was praying for the Thessalonians, God, that, that we would 
um, Father, understand, grasp, and receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and reflect His glory in being made worthy of the calling that You've put on our lives. And so God, fulfill that here today. I pray not a person would leave here today without understanding that they can be made worthy of the kingdom of God by the work of Jesus Christ. And that it's a simple act of faith to believe that. So Father, hear this prayer. Answer it in this moment right now as we have your word open in front of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. My worthiness uh, does not depend on me, uh, but on Christ. So some things that are going to push at us now as we look at this. Uh, I must, first of all, we're going to look at five of these. I must rejoice in his righteousness. Rejoice in his righteousness. And when you're a Christian, listen, this is the starting point of every controversy, every conversation, everything you'll ever talk about, every discussion you'll ever have about anything. The starting point is always God. What does God say about this? What are my reactions going to be in light of what God has done in my life? How am I supposed to be thinking about this? What are the words that I'm going to say that are going to honor Christ? No matter what the discussion, no matter what the conversation, the starting point is God. And so when Paul says here, the very first part of verse 5, this is evidence, you see it there, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That's the key phrase. The righteous judgment of God. He's saying something about God that's relevant to our worthiness. Any chance we have of being right with God is right in that phrase. It's rooted in the fact that he is a, notice the phrase, he is a righteous judge. Not just that he's righteous, not just that he's a judge, but he is a righteous judge. Both of those words so important to our understanding here. Because what this means is he's going to judge. He's going to judge. But he's going to judge on the basis of his own righteousness, his own character, his own holiness. His goodness. He judges fairly according to his own character. It is objective. It is rooted in who he is. It's not subjective. It's not related to the whims and fancies of humanity. Of times and seasons and circumstances. That's how we judge things. But it's according to his own character that he judges all of this. So yes, there will be, by God's righteous judgment, there will be condemnation for sin. But because he's a righteous judge, there will also be compassion for the plight that I find myself in. And the challenge in our society today with regard to God and the Bible and all of this faith and understanding it all is that everyone likes the nice parts of God. Everybody likes the things that are comfortable to believe, that are palatable to us as human beings, and, and, and people reject the demands of God. And we must rejoice at the outset of this message where we're going to talk about some very heavy things. We have to rejoice in every part of who he is 
We have to rejoice in every part of who he is because God will mete out his justice and mercy on on humanity. And so we're going to rejoice in his righteousness. He's not a capricious God. He's not a careless God. He's not a detached God. He's not a condemning God. He's a righteous judge. That's the, that's the foundation for this. And, and then secondly, we see this. Not only uh, must we rejoice in his righteousness, but also rely on his justice. Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time here, and this is really the heart of the message. We're going to spend some time looking at verses 5 through 9 here because there's some heavy stuff to actually take in here. You get the thought when you're coming to a book like Second Thessalonians, it's just a nice little book, just a nice little book to a nice little church. There's no correctives in this book because the Thessalonian church basically had it all going on. They were a good church. So you can approach this and just go, this is a nice little series about grace. We were just talking about this with the elders before the service. Nice little series on grace. And then you get sucker punched by a section on hell. And it becomes like really heavy. See, if we're going to be made worthy by Christ, we need to rely on the justice of God. Because Paul said, now continuing verse 5, see this, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. These Thessalonian believers were suffering. They were undergoing persecution, direct opposition of their faith because, because they had been made worthy of the kingdom. So they give their life to Jesus. They believe the message of the gospel and life becomes not easier, but, but harder, but harder. Their faith was in Jesus Christ, and that was actually costing them something. The cost was high. They continue on, look in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just, now he's going to comfort them. Like, I know you received Jesus, and I, I know... You were so elated at at getting the life that comes from the gospel. And then life just became more difficult because all these people around you are now opposing you. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Listen, I want to comfort you right now, God is saying through Paul. I want to comfort you right now. I want to bring you encouragement because the people that are making it so hard on you, God's coming for them. God's coming for them. Verse 7, and, he, and, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. God's going to bring relief. He's going to help you out. He's not going to let the op, op, oppression and harassment of his people, he's not going to allow that to go unchecked. Now, at this point, I have a question. I don't know if you have the same question looking through this, but the big question I have Because I understand that persecution persists to this day. And if God is saying to the Thessalonians, hey, look, I'm going to get them and and, and I'm going to repay them and I'm going to bring relief to you. We're like 2,000 years down the road from the Thessalonians. And wherever the gospel has been preached, especially in new areas and in many places of the world where there are more dictator type of governments... Persecution has persisted. In fact, 
If you read the sites that talk about this and the organizations that track with persecution around the world, they're going to tell you that right now in the 21st century, Christians are being more persecuted today than they have been at any other period of earth history. More people giving their lives for the faith right now than in the first century when the gospel was first being preached. And I'm actually going to spend at the end of this series in July, right at the end of July, I'm going to take two weeks to talk about the persecuted church and lay some of this down for you and give some very specific examples. But the question I have here then is, so when God, when do you intend to fulfill this promise that you're making to the Thessalonians? It's evidently possible to accept Christ, to be under persecution, to receive the promise of God, and yet to go through your entire life still and be under persecution. And in fact, for some to even give their life as martyrs for the sake of the gospel. So when exactly does the relief come? Is anybody else wondering this? Thankfully, answer right in the Bible. Verse 7 continues. When does it come? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Has that happened yet? I didn't notice it. Verse 8. And then you get this description. And this, by the way, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 14 and 15 is where Paul's drawing this from. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obey the gospel, receive Jesus, follow the Lord, become a Christian, however you want to say that. Those who have rejected Christ's offer to make them worthy. God's justice demands that he respond to him, but that's coming at some future time, future yet to us. And so I have another question now. What's going to happen to them? Well, what's being described here in terms of vengeance? Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I'm getting a sense here like the church never needs to defend itself. Sometimes churches want to defend themselves and claim their rights and this shouldn't be happening and a little bit too enamored with trying to change governments and, and create an ideal situation for us to operate in. And perhaps the, the ideal situation for us to operate in is one under persecution because then you know for sure the gospel is hitting the mark. You see, we just don't know. We don't need to defend ourselves because we know for sure God's going to do that. And so we need to trust him. And we're going to see that in a few moments in, in verse 10. But right now we have this in front of us that these persecutors, these oppressors, these people who have rejected, not obeyed the gospel of Jesus, they are headed for what is described here as eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Obviously, they're headed to hell. And the passage here gives us a description of what hell is like, five descriptors of hell. It's not the nicest topic. It's very unpopular in our, in our society today to even talk about these things. Even, even churches and pastors are shying away from, uh, from dealing with the topic of hell. I don't want to preach that. 
Now, here's the challenge right here, because we like to just get a book of the Bible open and start at verse 1, chapter 1, and work to the end. And if you're not going to skip any verses, then it means at times you're going to come across a verse like verse 9, and you're going to have to deal with it. We'll leave that to the Lord. Five descriptors of hell. It exists, listen, because of the justice and righteousness of God. It exists because of the justice and righteousness of God. The flaming fire that we read of here, it actually flows. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but it actually flows from the throne of God. The flames of hell flow from the throne of God. How many people want a verse on that? Because you're like, I don't, I don't know about that. How many people want a verse? How many people want a verse? Dan 7. Daniel 7. I just put Dan here. Sorry. Not Dan. Dan's down here. Sorry. <laughs> Daniel 7, 9 and 10. This is Daniel having this vision. As I looked, thrones were placed in the ancient of days when an awesome description of our God took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was it was what is it? Say it out loud. The throne of God is fiery flames. It's wheels. God's throne has wheels. We're burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. That's the holiness of God. That's his righteousness bringing judgment upon the earth. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. Hell exists because of the justice and righteousness of God. It is his judgment against those who fail to obey the gospel. Secondly, hell is reserved for those who do not obey the gospel. The faithless, the rebellious, those still in their sin will populate hell. Those who rejected the gospel of grace that was offered to them. Third... It is eternal destruction. Um, This is the uncomfortable truth to be sure. But Jesus in the story of the ten virgins. The bridegroom came and said. The ones who were not watching. Who were not waiting. This is Matthew 25, 46. Will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Jesus said the same thing in essence. In four different parables. It's not a mistake. It's not a one-off. As difficult as this is to say, the punishment, the torment is eternal. Fourth, four to five descriptors of hell. This is number four. It is the absence of God and his grace. This is perhaps the worst part of hell. There is no God. There is no common, we've talked about this already in the series, there's no common grace at play. Even if you don't love Jesus, you are being blessed by him. That there is common grace in this world, even to those who do not believe God is blessing you in untold ways. But that is removed. No God, no common grace in play, no blessings to those who don't even realize they're being blessed. John Dunn said this, when all is done, 
The hell of hells, the torment of torments is the everlasting absence of God and the everlasting impossibility of returning to his presence. To fall out of the hands of the living God is a horror beyond our expression, beyond our imagination, secluded eternally, eternally, eternally from the sight of God. Five, this may seem odd, but in light of what we're reading here, hell brings comfort to the oppressed. His justice, God's justice, won't allow the persecution to go unanswered. He's going to repay. He's going to bring relief. And you and I don't ever have to think about getting vengeance on anyone who's harmed us. And Paul said this to, to, to the Romans who were in a very similar situation. He said to them in Romans in twelve nineteen, but Beloved, um, here's the verse here, Romans 12. 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, Paul's point here is to bring comfort to the Romans, in that case, to the Thessalonians by telling them that these unrepentant, gospel-rejecting persecutors will be taken care of by God, according to, verse 5, his righteous judgment. Hell exists to let those who have been marginalized and oppressed and victimized by injustice to know that God will vindicate them. No one's getting away with anything. Despotic rulers who have murdered millions of their own citizens will not escape punishment. You can take comfort in that. Suicide bombers who kill bystanders will receive the payment for what they have done, rapists and abusers, human traffickers and pimps who exploit the young and the innocent will all get their due if they do not repent. And that should bring comfort to any victim that apart from repentance, apart from the blood of Christ being applied, if you have been victimized, abused, hurt in any way, God has your back. God has your back. If there is no hell, however, as some would want to teach, then the worst human beings who have ever lived get away with their crimes against humanity and their victimization, their cruelty. Victims need to know that God is there for them because he is a God of justice and a God of righteousness. And I know the idea of hell assaults are enlightened. We're so enlightened in the 21st century. It assaults our enlightened sensibilities. We don't think about the worst people because that seems easy to us. And somehow we have a category for that where the worst people will indeed go to hell. We think about the really moral people who live next door to us. Who are apparently going to hell because they're not into Jesus. Is that not the harder thing to consider? But the reason why we don't like the idea of hell 
Which, by the way, let's, let's just, first of all, if we understand anything about our God, let's just understand he has the prerogative to have hell if he wants to. Because he is who he is. He's a holy God. But we don't like the idea of hell as human beings because we are predisposed, every one of us, we are predisposed to self-justification. We self-judge. And we don't believe that anyone else should ever judge us. Exaltation of the individual and the freedom of conscience and other enlightenment philosophies have elevated our self-importance and denigrated who God is. And so we tell God that some measures of sin are not really that bad and people shouldn't go to hell. That he should just overlook it all. In other words, who is God to tell me what to do or to tell my neighbor what to do? Who is God to judge me or to judge my neighbor? They're a good person. Who is God to condemn anyone to go to hell if they're giving it their best effort? I'll let the answer come from two quotes, one from C.S. Lewis and one from Randy Alcorn. Here's what Lewis said. There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. And I think we would all agree with that. But it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason, said C.S. Lewis. Here's what Randy Alcorn said. Perhaps we hate hell too much because we don't hate evil enough. If we regard hell as a divine overreaction to sin, we deny that God has the moral right to inflict ongoing punishment on any humans. By denying hell, we deny the extent of God's holiness. When we minimize sin's seriousness, we minimize God's grace in Christ's blood shed for us. For if the evils he died for aren't significant enough to warrant eternal punishment, perhaps the grace displayed on the cross isn't significant enough to warrant eternal praise. God's holiness, which we are to praise him for, demands a response to sin, and we're not to be the ones who create the standard. God does. God creates the standard. And so the question we ought to be asking is not how could God send people to hell? That's the question we ask. The question is not how could God send people to hell, whether they're very evil or whether there are very moral neighbors. It's not how could God send people to hell, but rather how could God allow anyone into heaven? That's the question. And personalize it. Don't make it about anyone around you. Make it about yourself. How in the world could God allow me into heaven? See, I I know the darkness of my own heart. I know the things that go on in here and in here that are opposed to the Lord. I know that I appear to all of you as this morally upstanding, fine, strong Christian guy. I know that that's the perception I project on you. 
But I know how my prayers stand before the Lord, what they sound before the Lord. I, I know how I feel when I'm reading the scriptures. I know how far short of the mark I come. I accepted Christ as my Savior 40 years ago. There's still nothing in me to commend me to Jesus. Nothing. I'm unworthy in every way. How could he possibly let me into heaven? Yet by his grace, he somehow makes that possible. And so I need to, notice this next, I need to rest in his promise. The promise to save those who receive his grace. There will be those who suffer the consequences, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified. Notice what happens for those of us who have received his grace now. To, glor- to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony, the message we preached, the sermons we brought to you, the gospel that was proclaimed, was believed. I mean, the authors of this letter, Paul's name kind of gets put at the very top of it. But remember, he said, this is from three of them. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had all been in Thessalonica and had preached the gospel, had brought their testimony of Jesus Christ to them. And many of them had believed. And that believing, listen, was the only criteria, the only criteria, to avoid the flaming fire of his judgment and the eternal destruction of those who did not obey the gospel. The promise, the testimony is that Jesus Christ took our unworthiness on himself. Jesus Christ took our unworthiness on himself. Philip Yancey said this, again, this is from the book, What's So Amazing About Grace. Grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. You ask people what they must do to get to heaven, and most reply, and this is where we get off track, and this is why we don't want to believe in hell. Okay? You ask people what they must do to get to heaven, and most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we must do is cry, help. That's the problem we have with hell. We have a standard that allows good people who aren't into Jesus to get to heaven on their own merits by being good. And that's wrong. The only way for so-called good people, the only way for bad people, the only way for really bad people is grace. It's to call out to God and to say, help, and to rest in the promise that he's going to come to us with that simple plea. Rest in his promise. Rest in his gospel. Rest in his testimony. Rest in what he's told us about how we come to faith in him. We must look to the cross because he's the one who bore our sin and shame. He's the one who took our unworthiness on himself. My worthiness does not depend on me, but on Christ. 
I must rest in his promise. I must also receive his power to change. Verse 11 now. To this end, we always pray for you. What are they praying? That our God may make you worthy of his calling. There it is again. And may fulfill every resolve for good. That's your, that's your moral living, okay? The standard by which you are now going to live as a follower of Christ and every work of faith by his power, everything you do for him, the person that you are and the things that you do now, both of them under the power of his grace. And when he says that he's going to make us worthy, this is judicial language. This is courtroom language. This is God up there as the judge looking at us in our unworthiness, hearing Jesus as the advocate speaking on our behalf saying, his sins are covered. She is cleansed by my blood. I'm taking that person's, your unworthiness on myself. Jesus saying that to his father, the judge. And the judge pronouncing, case dismissed. Declaring us to be righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Declaring us to be worthy of being in his kingdom. You see, God can make us worthy, as I said, because Jesus Christ took our unworthiness on himself. Jesus went to the cross, and uh, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as it says here, that our God may make us worthy. And I... And I I just believe that there's so many people who are still struggling on this point. That salvation, our worthiness to be part of God's kingdom, is not at all dependent on anything we do. It's grace alone, undeserved, unearned favor from God. It's grace alone that makes us worthy. Someone said, a grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. And so it comes down to a simple cry for help. Or as Paul explained it in Romans ten thirteen, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all it takes is to call on the name of the Lord. And if you're still relying on on how good you think you are? If you think that somehow you came here today and being part of worship earned you some points somewhere? If you're still weighing, weighing things out in the balance. I remember thinking that before I came to Christ. I remember as a, as a, as a young teen, really considering carefully, because I was raised in a moral home. An unbelieving, moralistic home. And I remember thinking, I'm basically a good kid. I remember praying to a God I was not connected to, not related to. And literally thinking through the balances. I've done more good things than bad things. God will let me into heaven. I know he won't. 
Not on that basis he won't. If you're still relying on how good you think you are, if you're still weighing things out in the balance, if you, then I'm just telling you, you're still unworthy. You're still headed to hell. If you think religious rites like baptism, which is commanded in the Scripture as a post-conversion testimony to what's happened to you, but if you're relying on your baptism, if you were sprinkled as a baby, I'm just telling you, the only thing that happened was your head got wet. If you're relying on certain prayers, I prayed a prayer. I was at an evangelistic thing. I said the exact words that the pastor said to say. That doesn't make you worthy. Jesus makes you worthy. Your serving doesn't make you worthy. Your serving is, is a, a, a reaction of love toward a God who saved you. It's an after the fact. You're not earning any points with God. Your giving certainly didn't get you there this morning. You can give everything you have and not get to heaven. None of that makes you worthy. Only Jesus makes you worthy. Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you cried out to him, help? Have you obeyed the gospel? One more. I must also revel in his glory and grace. Verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. And you in him. Notice according to the grace. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace actually implies. This whole topic of unworthiness. Grace implies unworthiness. Because grace, again, is this undeserved, unearned favor from God to sinful people. It's built on the foundation of unworthiness. That's actually the starting point for any relationship with God. The starting point for a prayer of, of help toward God is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God, I don't have it in me. I am a sinner and my sin has separated me from you. And I don't have any way to get to you. Except to confess that and to cry out to you to help me. We're unworthy because of our sin. We're unworthy of God, of his kingdom, of his love, of the sacrifice of his son. We're unworthy of every other kindness that God has shown to us. And every person in this room is the recipient of God's kindness today. Let alone over a lifetime. And even though we're unworthy, God did not leave us in that place. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated, showed, commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So receive the grace of Christ. Let the glory of Christ be evident in you and turn your life over to him. Let's pray.
Father, there's no doubt that there are many reminders in this uh, message for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time or even a short time and who have already received the grace. We have, by the language of this text, obeyed the gospel. But Father, this passage in particular, this message, has to pierce to the hearts of those who have not yet obeyed the gospel. God, I know that there are people in this room who are still relying on their religious background or relying on their goodness to somehow bargain with you at the end. And it's never going to be enough. And so, God, I pray for those in the room who have not yet cried out to you have not yet asked you to help them. And I pray, God, that you would save them by your grace, that your Holy Spirit would be so overwhelming, convincing them of the things that they've heard here from your word this morning. And that they could feel right now being drawn toward you. You are the one who saves You are the one who forgives sin. You are the one who takes away our unworthiness and makes us fit for your kingdom. So God, if there are unbelievers across this realm, I pray that in this moment they would be becoming believers even as we're praying. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.